It wasn't until New Zealand playwright Eleanor Bishop was on, a, on the New York Broadway scene that she'd heard about Chris Krauss. Krauss, born in New York, grew up in New Zealand, studied at Victoria University of Wellington and worked as a journalist at the good old Evening Post. But she found prominence in New York with her art and cultural commentary books, specifically I Love Dick, which produced a predictable uproar, and Aliens and Anorexia. It's the latter book, an uh, autobiographical fiction of her life, that has just been converted, to use a word, to stage production by Eleanor and fellow playwright and friend Karen McCracken. There's a question there, isn't there, about aliens and anorexia? Life takes off like a jet. The present moment always radicalizes everything. Boom, here we are. Mm. I'm sitting, the light is in my eye, you're wearing a funny suit, you're looking at me. I do that in aliens, you know, I kind of stick in the present tense. So as I'm studying these people, these biographies, these other lives, I'm talking about them as they're passing through me, through my body, as I'm writing the book. And so that becomes a very different kind of thing. It becomes more like a performance. That is the voice of Chris herself. And a bit of burst of music at the end. Uh, the play, written by our guest Eleanor Bishop and Karen McCracken, is called Gravity and Grace. Now, this is named after a film Chris Krauss herself made in New Zealand in the 90s and refers to herself as an epic failure. In the play, Karen plays Krauss and Eleanor's the director. It's a combination that works well for the pair. They won the Bruce Mason Playwriting Award in 2022, and that's the first time in its 40-year history that that prestigious award has gone to a partnership. And they've created several shows together covering topics like healthy relationships, consent, erotic fiction, scientific research, and the language of old Hollywood. We'll talk more about that later. Lovely to have you here. Kia ora korua. Welcome. Kia ora. Thank Thank you. Eleanor, let's, um, you pick up as you want, each of you, but let's begin with you. And what led you to Chris Krauss as a subject? Well, like your intro said, <laughs> I was in New York and it was the first time in my life that I had been introducing myself as a New Zealander and someone hadn't come back with, oh, Flight of the Concords or Lord of the Rings. The theatre people I was with came back with, oh, New Zealand, do you know Chris Krauss? And... I didn't, um, and then I picked up her work, um, I Love Dick, as a lot of um, young women of my generation at that time did, and just completely fell in love with her voice. Um, So bold, so feminist, so funny, so utterly kind of self-aware and self-deprecating, and it kind of drove me crazy that she had this past and this history in New Zealand and wrote heaps about New Zealand in her work, and nobody kind of in New Zealand... (laughs) from my reckons at that time kind of knew who she was so yeah I had a I had a great desire to introduce her her work and her voice um, to more New Zealanders and do that now because she was an outsider to the arts world there mm-hmm. uh, and I mean this was she returned to her place of birth um, born in New York born, born in, the, in America, in America. So yes, anyway, yeah, she yeah. returned to the States but but her formative years absolutely here mm-hmm. And so she goes to New York as an outsider, and frankly, you could be in a different borough of New York and you're an outsider in the art world, right? Yeah. So what was her impact? Well, I think her impact in America has been gradual. Mm. Like she, and this is kind of all covered in the play, actually. She um, starts making films, um, sort of experimental 
films that are just shown in kind of galleries and punk clubs. And then she um, really starts writing kind of cultural fiction um, because she's married to Sylvia Lotringer, who's kind of a, a kind of cultural critic as well. And then um, it's only after she does this film, Gravity and Grace, that she um, kind of gives up on being a filmmaker and starts becoming a writer. And then she writes I Love Dick, which, you know, becomes this kind of cult hit and then a second resurgence of kind of cult hitness. Um, so she's she's really renowned as a writer, but, um, yeah, it took her a while to but get there. But also as a critic, and, and this is the this is the other um, issue here, we, we talk about her as a feminist, and I'm, and I'm keen to um, delve a little bit more into that. But from some of the reading I was doing, she was sort of in that world of the critics and the publishers and the gatekeepers mm. to who got to write and say things about whom. And that's where she seems to have had some impact including persuading them that perhaps actually some women may actually be worth uh, publishing um, uh, uh, in, in publishing their criticism, for example. So what was her impact in that respect, Karen? Yeah, significant. I think she is a fantastic critical writer, um, and she ended up doing a lot of that writing for Semiotext, which was a publishing house she went on to lead with Silver. Um she was really interested in women's experiences and the interiority of women and their experiences and was writing about that um, herself and was encouraging other women to write about that and to, and for women to celebrate that. Um, and distinct, distinct, I suppose, from some other strands of feminism, the, you know, that terrible lean-in period we had... Um, now being much revisited on reading of late. Truly has not <laughs> aged well. Um, she was more interested in the kind of um, gritty reality of what it was to be a woman. And she often talked about what it was to be a woman in the art world and to be so overlooked um, for her male counterparts. What was the world she was moving in and who was she? And some of this will come through the play. You know, who are some, mm. of, the, who are some of the names we should drop here? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's all those kind of um, uh, French kind of cultural critics and theorists that um, Semiotext initially started, like, um, publishing, you know, um, and translating, like, Deleuze and Guattari, like, and Arto, yeah, um, that semiotext was some of the first people to put those works in into English language. Um, and yeah, and then yeah, Chris was like, hey, you're not doing any women writers. Mm. We should do a spin-off of semiotext called Native Agents and have, have female mm. critics and, and writers um, being published. Someone said, oh, we won't do any French women um, <laughs> critics because they're always so psychoanalytic. Yeah, yeah, Psychoanalytical, yeah, right. I would terrible. say. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible, terrible trait to have in writing, I find. <laughs> Let alone <laughs> criticism. Yeah. Okay, and and her her New Zealandness because uh, mm. this is another thing was her outsiderness a barrier or in some way a curiosity? What what difference did that make? You mean when she came back to New Zealand? Uh, or no, in, the, in New York. I mean, in the first instance. Yeah, yeah. She definitely she talks about she talks about the experience of moving from New Zealand as more or less knowing what's going on all the time to moving to New York and beginning the process of total lobotomization of a sense of never knowing what's happening. You never having the, the, you don't have the full lens of what's going on in the landscape. Um, And so I think she worked really hard to, she wanted to become an artist. And so she was working really hard to sort of break in, um, which was difficult, which was, I mean, Eleanor, you know, you, you had the experience (laughs) of going to New York and, 
I'm yeah. sure, having a sense of your New yeah. Zealandness. Sadly, the New York of 2014 is Not quite a lot same. different to the New York of 1979. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Um, we all, I think, of our generation long for that earlier period. It's very romanticized. But yes. um, yeah, I think it was it was very hard for her. And then, of course, she met Sylvia, who sort of had more cachet and, and, you know, they were in love and working together. But I think she was also his wife, quote unquote. Um, and yeah, that's obviously depicted in, in I Love Dick. Yeah, yeah. And in our play. Yeah. yeah. Um, I Love Dick. Dick was actually a person, I think. That's probably mm-hmm. not what we're thinking. Is our first response to yes. that wonderful title. <laughs> Richard, but, uh, yes. but Dick is an actual person. And, and when you look at that... Um, We'll come to the book on which the bay is, uh, which the play is based in a moment. But what is it about that work that mm. had such impact on a, on a generational yeah, readers yeah. like you, for example? I think she's doing the thing that young women are told they're not allowed to do, which is to be um, needy, to be open about your feelings, to pursue someone relentlessly, to pursue a man relentlessly when they are not showing much interest in you. These behaviors were considered just unhinged for a woman to to publicly say, and she was cataloging them just so truthfully um, and and with a huge amount of self-deprecation and humor. And so I think a lot of young women felt like, oh, my God, this is this is not something we've seen. Um, The position that she puts herself in the book, I think, was really resonating with young women. The play itself, let's talk about the other uh, key book that I've already mentioned, um, Aliens and Anorexia. This is described as an autobiographical fiction. Uh, it's pretty heavy thematically. <laughs> and can you, you can't explain it all, obviously, but can you give us an idea of this woman's brain? Mm. Can I give you an idea of Chris Grass's brain? I will certainly try. Uh, well, I'd start with the book. The, br- the book is an associative, non-linear piece of writing. And what she's trying to do, I think, in the book is work out how this film came to fail in the way that it did. So she catalogs how it was made and then its kind of reception. So she's sort of grappling with her own failure, and she's doing that in a very crisscross way, I think, by looking to other artists and the ways in which they they have deemed to fail despite having made perhaps really excellent work. So she talks about Paul Tech, who was an American visual artist working in New York, who at one point was the kind of the it art star, uh, and then died a kind of pauper and has only now sort of been revisited as a as a master. Um, looks at Simone Weil, the French philosopher, who was totally dis- discredited of her genius because she was... Um, sort of posthumously diagnosed as an anorexic by her biographers. Um, she talks about Ulrika Meinhof, who was involved with the RAF, Andreas Bader, and how she sort of lost her mind in prison. So the Bader-Meinhof gang. Yes, the Bader-Meinhof right. gang. Yeah. 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 So she, she's kind of working through what it means to fail, particularly as an artist, through looking at these the works of these people that she really admires. But how does she do that? Does she almost come to occupy her characters? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's the people that she's writing about have been Paul Tech, Simone Weil, or Rika Meinhof have been influences of hers from a very young age, like from when she first moved to New York. And so in the book is sort of told in real time, like she is writing the book and you are getting access to the process of writing the book. 
And it's almost like as she's writing these people, Simone, Orika, Paul, are like characters that she's living with mm. and they're occupying her psyche and are very real to her because she's so intimate with them Which because she's reading her work. Which I think we heard in that clip work. of her talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, in the play, we can do the theatrical thing of having them in real space with her, even though they're not literally there, they're all dead. Um, yeah, it's really <laughs> that idea of yeah. people occupying your psyche um, and being able to stage that, that I find very, yeah, beautiful. So when you, what's the dynamics of you working together, by the way? Do you co-write or does one write and the other act? And what's the what's the teamwork here? We usually co-write. We definitely co-wrote this one. Um, and it was because of the nature of the book, which is very... Um, again, non-linear and associative. It was a long process of mm. writing together. And then, yeah, we split into the kind of more trad roles of director and performer. Yeah, I think we have quite a cool writing process because always Karen's performing. And so, like, particularly with this project, she's performing as Chris Krause and so much of the work is told in her voice. So there becomes this kind of symbiosis between the writing and the acting and, yeah, a more kind of organic way of of realising it rather than just we sit in a room and write and then we so go into like rehearsal. Kind yeah, of we've yes. just been yeah. workshopping this for, like, four, four years. years. <laughs> just a casual four years. And... What of Chris Cross herself? Does she know you're doing it? Has she helped you with it? What? Yes, she knows we're doing it. We've had um, two Zooms with her. Um, well, she's been in L.A. Uh, that was probably back in 21 now. Yeah. She's fantastic, very helpful. We had pages of questions for her, and she very generously answered all of them. Um She's been great, yeah. I, she, I'm not sure if she's going to be able to see the show. Yeah, Obviously, she doesn't sure. live in New Zealand, yeah. but um, we're hoping that one day she'll be able to get to see it. Yeah. But she's been very supportive. Karen McCracken and Eleanor Bishop, our guests, on their work about Chris Krause, their play, uh, which is called Gravity and Grace. This was named after a film that Krause made in New Zealand in the 90s, refers to it itself as an epic failure, and then the book... Uh, Aliens and Anorexia, her way of artistically exploring that failure. 21 and a half minutes past 10. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. So how bad was this film? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, I I don't think it it kind of works as a traditional film or either as a kind of even maybe an experimental film. But um, I, I have a lot of love for it because of what Chris does in the book and what we're doing in the play, which is looking at where things come from and the context and the history and of a person's whole life going into an artwork. So I can see all of that in the work. So look, when we think of New Zealand, we think of goodbye, pork pie and sleeping dogs and, and, and you know, hunt of the, for the world of people. I take it this wasn't quite of that ilk. And was the problem the film? Was the problem us would this have worked in upper east side new york or what i mean i think the the best person to describe what happened with the film is chris herself in the book i mean she's so open about it she says at one point i never thought of movies visually before before (laughs) she made it possibly an issue (laughs) a huge issue which i think she realizes in pre-production when her dop is like where are the storyboards and she's like i don't have any storyboards you know so i think she what she wanted was to her bring her thoughts into reality, but probably the medium of film was not the right one. And isn't it fascinating that she works that out and becomes brilliant 
at what is her medium. Yes. But also that she's prepared to sort of open the veins, so to speak, totally. and go back and, and explore it. Mm. Yeah, and there's so much that goes wrong. Like, she hires a producer who's woefully underqualified, who grifts her out of a whole bunch of money. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. crashes just, a number of cars. Yeah, it's just chaos. It's so funny what happens on the shoot. What happens on stage? Do you play all the characters, Karen? No, I just play Chris Krause, and we have a fantastic ensemble of four other performers who play all of the other characters. So they have a much harder role than me, I'd say, in some ways, because they're you know, playing a German doorman and then playing, you know, her French husband and then playing Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, <laughs> playing Simonve, playing Ulrika and quick shifts. They're amazing. I'm just thinking of some of the costume changes there. It's um it's challenging, particularly the hair. Yeah, yes. lot of, a lot of wigs. <laughs> a lot of wig changes. Yeah. yeah, a lot yeah. of glasses. Yeah. You were writing this. You mentioned 2021, and straight away I'm having PTSD. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned Zoom, and I suppose that was the one upside, wasn't it? Uh, we all learned we could communicate yes. quite simply right. um, much more easily. Some artists were already onto that, some musos in particular. Um, but what was the experience of working on this through some of that time? Yeah, I mean, the book, when we first decided to work on it in 2020, it did kind of resonate with with, with me because of the pandemic in terms of, like, mm. what are we doing, like, as artists? You know, it just, it even though it wasn't, like, our fault, quote-unquote, it did feel like a failure or something. Definitely. Yeah, and so... Um, I mean, that's your lifeblood, life performance yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah. It's your lifeblood. It's where, it's where you draw energy from. Mm. Uh, and to be denied it for that long, I know mm. a lot of artists struggled. That's why yeah. they all made amazing um, little videos for us to get us through. That. That's right, yeah. I mean, especially in 2020, we had just come from an art successful arts market where we were pitching shows and it was looking really great. And then, it, you know, and as it did for everyone in the course of three days, it all fell away. It, it, interestingly, though, with this show, we were meant to premiere this show two years ago in the New Zealand Festival. And then Omicron swept through. And so we were cancelled on our second day of rehearsal. Um so there is a kind of um, spiritual <laughs> edge to this, you know, this production where it, it feels like we have to do it. Yeah. Um, we yeah, have, we to. have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It will happen. It will happen. <laughs> Don't you dare jinx it. Uh, yeah, I my best. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not doing that one again. Oh, God, yeah. we're not. Um, your collaboration together. Uh, across as many different works and that's an interesting dynamic too it's wonderful to find someone in any creative profession um, who just works almost as another half right mm. um, and I mean it's just of all the benefits of a, of, a, of a great relationship how and why does that dynamic work so well well, I think we have really similar interests mm. and and taste and taste, it. yeah. And then we've um, worked together so long that that taste gets developed and shared. You know, we go overseas and we see work together, and we get excited about things, and we just talk a lot of the time about work and what's mm. exciting. And then, yeah, we work really hard at our relationship, yeah, too. Yeah, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> like, any relationship, it requires work. Yeah. But we're also friends. Yeah. And that does help as well. Yeah. 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 You've collaborated on several plays, Yes, Yes, Yes being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, what a topic of our times, actually, of any time. Mm. But each time seems to have its own issues in dealing with this very fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. Consent and the fact that someone else's body is not your entitlement. I think we'll be dealing with it for quite a while to come. Yeah. 
when did you do this work? It's still travelling, I understand. Um, and how did you come at this issue in our contemporary context, which for me is so dominated by the pushback against our feminist mothers mm. who beat our brothers and boyfriends into shape, and our, and also by the dominance of certain types of internet porn mm. and their mm. influence on what people consider to be healthy sexual behaviour. Mm. How did you come at this? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, we made the work in, in, in 2018 and premiered it in 2019. So, yeah, a very kind of hot time for this topic. Um, but I would say the biggest thing that we did was we spent time with young people. Um, mm. Yeah, we went to heaps of different schools and talked with young people about what they considered to be important and mm. yeah and we also did lots of research on best practice for sexual violence prevention at a um at a primary prevention level that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get in before harm happens and so we knew a lot about what sort of things we'd need to be um fronting with and a big thing was that it should be strengths-based and kind of positive that we should be focusing on what young people can achieve with the skills that, that they have and the skills that they can develop rather than the consequence-based, fear-based approach. so important. Yeah, totally, totally. It is a skill. It's a skill. Sexual relations, intimate relations are a series of skills. That's right. And we don't celebrate that enough. And part of it, I think, is because of the fears that where young people are learning their sexual behaviour uh, from maybe a negative influence rather yeah. than flipping it and saying what are the skills and what is it that you want out of this experience well that's the thing right it's like part of the show is about celebrating pleasure and then that has to be part of the conversation because if it's not why are we doing any of this yeah. you know but, but each other's pleasure yeah totally well. totally yeah. and that that's and, like and a the shared pleasure experience that is yours and not imposed on you yeah. by an image of the way things should be that's right so what do you actually do in the, in the well, Karen, Karen tells a story about a night um, going out as yourself and, and meeting somebody and navigating, hooking up, basically. Um, and, you know, that that first time you meet someone and, and sleep together can be wonderful, but it can also be extremely kind of funny and awkward. Um, so we really kind of lean into that. Um, and that was that was something that I think we wanted to do because we were just like, how can we be honest and authentic with young people? Like, what is the opposite of some of the kind of dreadful preachy theatre that we saw as mm. young people on this topic? Like, we, did Karen, you get to see any? Well done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Karen shouldn't play a sixteen-year-old. She yeah. should play herself and yeah, just yeah. talk like an, an adult about be real. Um, so that's that's one part of it. Yeah, and that's kind of modelling consent, negotiating consent with someone else. And then we have another storyline where an assault does take place and that is navigated over um, messenger with young people messaging each other about something that happened at a party. And to do that, we invite audience participants um, up and they read these scripts with me on stage. Um, and so you hear from different characters in the story and how how everyone manages that very difficult um, situation. Because, again, it's a community. It's When something like that happens, it happens in the community, as well as to the people um, more intimately involved. 
Uh, and then we have a part. We've got two other parts. One is video interviews that we project with the young people that we worked with when we were making the show, and they're just talking about everything. And they are incredibly charming <laughs> and very funny and very wise. Uh, and then there's a part where the audience can text in what they're thinking or how they're feeling, and it's shown on a screen as well. So well, we're really trying to create this sense of community. Theater. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is traveling. I think it's. Um, did I see it in Wales? Is it is it being translated into Welsh? Yes, into, it's yeah. um, been translated into Welsh, and that is that production is touring next month, and it's also being translated into Catalan, and that's happening in Barcelona wow. next month. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting. We when we get to tour it, um, that's been a thing that we didn't think would happen. But mm. these internationals have said, you know, we really love the show, but yep. we want to make our own our own version of it with our own language. Just been very meaningful for us. Mm. Really, di real diversity here. The strangest of angels is with New Zealand Opera. Is mm -hmm. that a score? Is it a, a, a um, what do you call the like a ch it's like a chamber opera? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Chekhov's The Seagull. Yeah. Plenty of tradition there as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderful. So, where can people see Gravity and Grace? It's at the... It's at, at Circa Theatre. Yeah, and the yep. New Zealand Festival. And, and the, dates the dates are the 7th to the 10th. Of March. Of March. In Wellington. Someone and should check that. Ben and the, also in the Auckland Arts Festival. Right. At and that, that is, is closing on the 24th. If you work backwards, that's maybe the 21st. Yeah, we will make say. sure the accurate details are on the I website. I would love it Your if you publicists did. will be tearing me here. I know. I can't believe we didn't memorize we really, those we before did. this. We, we were doing well right to the end. Right to the end. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Karen McCracken, Alan Abish.